Welcome to iArt New York's 13th segment. The music we've been listening to is by the band Los Yoris, and the song is called Patacon on the album Una Vida. iArt New York is brought to you by your hosts, Rebecca Major and Isabella Gola, and we bring you interviews and exhibition reviews around New York. And today we have a very special guest all the way from Colombia, uh, Sebastian Carrasco who's been here for a couple of weeks and he's on his way back home in a few days. And um, Isabel is here to introduce him and his work. And just to say a couple of words about us, uh, my name is Isabella and I'm a visual artist and a curator at the Polish Cultural Institute of New York and uh, head of the visual arts and design programming. And Rebecca Major is also a visual artist studying masters in art history at Hunter College and is currently in an internship program at the Jewish Museum. So moving on to introducing Sebastian. Hi, it's so great to see you and to have you on our show. It's a big time <laughs> since we went to Hunter together and we, we will talk a little bit about that as we go along. Sebastian Carrasco is a Colombian artist, educator and researcher. His body of work constantly transforming does not stay still in specific medias, subjects or techniques. Nevertheless, there is a conscious intention of approach situations where the body and the self encounter power structures. And uh, a little bit about the unicorn, because that's your big hybrid project that's very dense and there is a lot that uh, comes with it. The documentary, The Hunt of the Unicorn, which is more like a mockumentary uh, in a way, it's combining the real and constructed. The Hunt of the Unicorn, La Casera del Unicorno. Am I <laughs> twisting that? La Caseria del Unicornio. It's a series of works called The Unicorn Project, and the series propose an experimental use of the iconography of the unicorn and the iconography of the cow farming culture in Colombia, Mixing, cutting, and displacing, this, uh, and this exercise creates another meta-myth um, of the Latin American unicorn. It is an insight into the myriad of the different mythic transformations over time of the unicorn, and uh, I had the pleasure to include the work, the unicorn project, in my show last year, What Are You Doing Here in the Dark, Susie?, which Rebecca also was part of, and um, it was uh, amazing frame for the landscape. So you're using the Metropolitan Cloisters tapestries that were created between 1495 and 1505, which tell the story of the unicorn of the mm -hmm southern netherlands so that's like the bleached uh, version of a unicorn because that uh, mythological form was uh, transforming throughout different mythologies uh, since uh, early middle ages and eventually it became the white uh, horse with the horn but before then it was a rhino like in persian culture and it mm -hmm. was something else and then you layer that with uh, with the uh, colombian cattle culture those scenes from the video and from tapestries. I would like to clarify which scenes quote the 21st century Colio World Cup in Villa Vicencio and uh, Secure in Colombia and the other places that you that you had. Um, what what is the relation between the two uh, mythologies? Well, I think I can start start from the beginning. Basically, um, I don't know. Walking like around in Colombia, I just found a cow once, and. Um, the cow had only one horn. It didn't, it wasn't not in the middle of the forehead, you know, but it was like just sideways. But I just took a picture of it, um, like uh, I said, like from the side, you know, and so it looked like a unicorn. 
So just like thinking about like, like that image, I was like, okay, I, could be kind of cool to say like the, this is our unicorn kind of thing. So I started like uh, researching like um, about the story of the cattle in Colombia because you know like the cattle doesn't is not doesn't belong to the Americas. Mm-hmm. It's actually European, and um, what comes from Europe, you know, it arrived from there. And at the same time, I was like, okay, so I need to trace kind of like the the history of the cattle at the same time the history of the unicorn to see if like they can actually match in some point. And the tapestries were kind of like a that 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 key moment where I could find like um like let's say basically like like find like the the last transformation of the unicorn because the unicorn had like the myth or like the animal has been transforming like through time and space you know like in history and in you know like in in that moment it's like 1495 it's kind of a key moment where we have like the documentation of like this white horse let's say you know that that has these powers and it's kind of like um kind of I don't know like you know like the descriptions of the unicorn are like in specific points of history there are like kind of like these common key moments where like the the animal transforms basically so I found that one and uh in the like I don't know like if it's in the documentary or like even in just like the the pieces that are written in the walls you know like in the in the technical like or biographical like um information of the pieces the the tapestries have like something really really nice and beautiful like beautiful about like the description of like the place where they are like taking place you know like those scenes and it basically says there is like a world that um doesn't have any seasons and at the same time um like a uh, i don't know plants from like the summer and the winter can grow together mm-hmm. and basically like that's the description of a tropical place <laughs> like mm-hmm. colombia or like down there basically in the equator and i said okay like this kind of matches you know like this kind of mythical world that where the um, unicorn lives or inhabits is like it's basically my fucking like, country <laughs> in certain way you know like it looks like pretty similar you know like we have all these plants at the same time so I mean it makes sense you know like for the kind of like the metaphor I was looking for and at the same time I, I actually like uh, I don't know find the, some data of like the first cows that arrived to the Americas that actually arrived with uh, Columbus and uh, they were like two, yeah 200 cows basically they were like a, a lunchbox with uh, legs so they 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 enter you know from Haiti and stuff and like they start to enter those cows through Haiti and then through Venezuela and they walk all the way through Venezuela to the middle of Colombia. It's like that's like big walk like in the Andes is super dangerous and stuff and you have like desert jungle like all sorts of like weather problems. So I said okay, like it makes sense like the dates make sense everything makes sense. So, oh, I'm so gonna... it was about the same time when the tapestries were. <coughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, the first like uh, trip of Columbus was like a. 1492 right, right. so mm. it's like okay I think it makes sense you know he, like one of those trips like they just brought like food you know right. and maybe like that food turned into a unicorn or I don't know like what yeah. happened in that boat but you know it's something happened there and there's a unicorn <laughs> in the middle of that trip so I said okay it's kind of like a nice startup point to like actually tell my story and uh, what happens with the, with the tapestries is like I already found like that narrative and I already found like that way of telling the story even the format you know that tapestry format let's talk let's say like you know like the the surface like talking about in terms of format so it's all everything there i just need to borrow everything mm-hmm. so i need to borrow the kind of like i borrow the the narrative and as well as the medium you know to basically tell the story um in so a, when you say borrow you uh, mean the video that was an actual bbc production from the 80s or something which is you use that on one panel <laughs> on this this in in your in your video piece, the Unicorn Project. Well, so on that, one panel, it was the actual like BBC 
production about the you know description and and the tapestries and, and like tapestries. the story and, and on stuff. the other side was your footage in actually Columbia. it was not food that was not my footage that was no. also like found footage oh, from fine. from youtube and stuff but yeah everything like deals with this idea of like cow culture like cattle culture in yeah. colombia cowboy kind of culture in colombia it is actually pretty different from the states you know it's like it like has different kind of meanings and you know like the people behave completely it's different called a ranchero I'm putting my foot in my mouth. Like, what is it? What is a cowboy called in? In Janero, because it doesn't refer to the cows; it refers to the place where he lives. That is called Los Llanos, like ah, the okay. like the plains. So the documentary I have noticed from 1974, "The Hunt for the Unicorn," and it was published by the Metropolitan Museum. Okay, not BBC. or or was it BBC? Because uh, I wanted. To I think I think I think it's published by the Metropolitan Museum and it's funded by the Petro- Metropolitan Museum. So like, but it has that right. kind of quality, yeah. Yeah. like a very. Produced, because that also comes narrated, yeah. Just, you know. Because the, the the whole research comes after you know after that. But it the really is interesting how many myriad of cultural and historical meanings that it's generated for you and then for the viewer as well. Because it, there's just so many different avenues of interpretation. I can, can go into, um, you know, like we're in our current um, culture on the brink of all of these scientific breakthroughs with genome splitting and cloning and kind of manipulating um, animals, really, right? And so, but the farming culture has been doing that on a very slow, slow scale for hundreds of years. And that kind of ties in with the unicorn, which is not really an actual being, but a kind of mythological being, maybe a perfect or... You know what I'm saying? I'm, where I'm getting that with that idea of it's a concept. It's not really mm-hmm. an earthly being, um, much the same way that the science is kind of generating and a being that's not from this earth. They're kind of creating it as we speak in laboratories. Well, I think that's pretty funny because, like, during the, the moment that I was doing the research for the project, I started like founding a lot of, lot of like websites or like. Yeah, of the history, like the history of cattle in Colombia, and how they actually like were like kind of reproducing certain cows with another ones to adjust them for, for example, the weather. So like Colombia is kind of like um, it's like really diverse in terms of like flora and fauna, and you have like a well, we don't have the seasons like as I was telling you, but we have like uh, how you call it like I don't know like like it, like the the weather like varies by altitude, right? So you have like really like high parts like for example Bogota. That is really high in the mountains in the Andes, or you have like like I don't know like the same level as, as the sea level, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So like basically like Spanish people like because like the the history of, of Carlin Colombia is pretty complex, like how it, it arrived, and actually it's really tied with the violence there too. And uh, so basically it's like um they they needed to adapt certain like families of cows for the yeah. for the altitude and basically for oh. the kind of food that they they needed to produce. So it's like. I think the f- like the first Colombian cow or like the American cow is called Velázquez. It's like a, it's like a mixture in a couple of Spanish cows, you know, and it's made basically to produce milk and meat at the same time. So it's like a cow with a lot of muscle, mm-hmm. but either way, it produces a lot of meat, and you need that kind of thing, you know, like for the high, yeah, the, the high altitude. So it depended on that. So I think it's like kind of interesting what you're saying because it's like kind of like. It's like the attitude of humanity towards like an animal, you know, in right. many ways. Like perfecting uh, this mythical or, you know, unattainable, or it is attainable, but through a lot of uh, science and technology and manipulation. But I, it also <coughs> strikes me that it is kind of rooted into somehow 
the myth of the unicorn itself, is it tied to the concept of colonialism in a very broad sense, in the sense that Columbus came to South America and brought with him these cattle, but the unicorn as a symbol, did it represent the unknown and the mystique of the exotic for the 15th century man and woman? Could it have been a form of propaganda even to, you know, imagine this wondrous land somewhere out there, this mystical, and that, how that ties into colonialism maybe? I mean, I think, this, I mean, I've, I've thought about these relationships like like several times, basically. I think that like one one of the things that I, I can tell you about that is, I think I find pretty interesting is like there's always like you need to kill the myth to be able to like actually like have it, you know? Mm-hmm. You need, in the story of the unicorn, you need to kill it. Mm-hmm. You need to kill it by a really like a specific procedure. Mm-hmm. And then you will be able to have it and the unicorn will revive mm-hmm. in like the hands of like or like the yards of the castle and it will live there forever. Mm-hmm. And it will like kind of provide the magical and mysterious kind of like supernatural powers to the mm-hmm. king and the queen. Kind of mm-hmm. that's, that's the story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty interesting that that happens with a lot of myths, you know. You need to kill them to be able to like get them, you know. Like, mm-hmm. A dragon, you need to kill it kind mm-hmm. of thing, you know. Like the unicorn is there for killing it so you can actually like get like, I don't know, like make a cup of like the horn. That's kind of like, there's a lot of cups in like the museums in the world that are like claiming they're like mm-hmm. cups made on unicorn uh, horn because basically like they say that the unicorn could actually like um, prevent you from being poisoned. So they, right. that's why they made the cups. There's like a couple of like little boats that they used to put inside of the wine cup mm-hmm. so of the king so he didn't get poisoned, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> there but is interesting interjection <coughs> in what uh, Rebecca was getting at with the colonialism. I think because like with the colonialism you bring, you intrude in the land and you bring outside resources to an existing inhabitants of ecosystem or existing like social, political uh, setting. And you bring something foreign. And with this is what happened with the cattle. It was brought from Europe. Uh, so it's, it's a transplant superimposed on Colombian land. And then there's this cult around the cattle and the whole like sports which revolve around cattle uh, culture, which you also talk about, uh, which in a way like in one, on one side elevate, make the cow seem like supernatural in a way, like it acquires this extra superpowers and then it's also being tormented and tortured and there's a lot of violence and a a lot of venting this feudal structure hierarchy in the whole sport and culture revolving around cattle culture and the farming and that's, that very much evokes uh, Middle Ages structure, this like very... uh, Middle Age, Dark Age, uh, feudal structure. In that sense, like, were you thinking about those things, like the Middle Ages and the mythology folded onto the contemporary myth built, layered around the cattle culture now? Yeah, I think so. Actually, like, when I was, like, in those places, as you said, like, the sports, uh, they have, like, there are, like, actually several sports, like, around the cattle culture, like, those two that appear in the video, like, in the whole pieces are, like, um, Coleo. That is basically like something that it derives from like the daily activity of the cowboys, which is basically you know like when the cow like escapes from the from the cowboy, they just run after the cow and like if they they cannot like lasso her or like lasso it I don't know, they were gonna grab it from the tail, throw it to the floor, and then in the floor they are gonna just tie it up you know like the the thread or like whatever the rope, mm-hmm. 
So it's like that's kind of like that's for the rise from that. And I think it's like um it's kind of like interesting because like yes, yeah, kind of like I think that basically I said that in Colombia in certain areas we still live in the dark ages. Basically. Right. So, you know, that's like, what they you have were saying. Similar <laughs> things. That's called the rodeo. Yeah, it's like in, in Brazil. And, and it's like a real, you know, sport. Not an Olympic sport, but, but it involves a lot of violence, and uh, violence, it does. Yeah. Uh, it does come from Middle Ages and elements of violence, which, in a way, in a very perverse way, falls or reflects in this Christian uh, idea of the sacrifice and Eucharist. Mm. And I think that's that's also another layer there. That's very strange, and it evokes this idea of the slaughter for the sake of sacrifice. Also, in a way evokes uh, the Christ and his sacrifice for human sins in iconography from oh, the Middle in Ages. in the sense that the unicorn comes back to life. And, so and then, no, and yes, like, Christ and then, has risen or something. Absolutely. Like, it and comes then, back from um, the dead. That's, that's the speech on the, actually, like, the, the tapestries. It's like, a, it's like an analogy, like uh, the passion of Christ. Or it's borrowing like, kind of storylines. Yeah. The hunt for the unicorn tapestries from the Metropolitan Museum yeah. or your tapestries. Oh, the, the, I, I think I made basically both I think in certain yeah. points you know because right. I just borrow it but yeah the, the, like let's say like the, the official speech that even is in the um, in the documentary like in the documentary we're talking about is that you know it's like it's like a metaphor of Christ mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and they are referred to Christ constantly like mm -hmm. I don't know like they are talking about the, the plants and the flowers for example and it's like the lily there is the uh, flower of the Virgin Mary that, 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 that happened and uh, when they kill the unicorn and the unicorn revives, it's just like a metaphor of Christ. And like, it's like this whole, whole idea that is like this like, metaphoric way, you know. It's interesting it. to me, this is just a total side note, but that it wasn't really seen as being blasphemous, like borrowing or piggybacking on this other biblical text because it's completely otherwise unrelated to the Bible. Like it doesn't appear. Anyway, but my question is, um, so the video project is one piece and then you've subsequently or since then made actual tapestries can you talk about those how many have you made and what are the images that we would yeah totally see? well basically like the video we were talking about uh, I, I used it almost like as my sketch for the whole project kind of thing so it helped me understand a little bit like kind of like the similarities between the, like the cultures and like what, all these ideas that we were talking about basically and then I developed like the story on the tapestry so like uh, there are seven pieces mm. so it's like um, the four of them are the the actual copy of the tapestry what I just did is was like um, redo the tapestries let's say like copying the compositions and the characters and like the animals that were there and like the positions of the of the things you know like in the in the tapestry of the but metropolitan not, it's not a, a replica do you change the position of the various Elements what what I did basically is like I, I did them based on the Colombian culture. So it's mm -hmm. like tapestries that are based on like photographic images. So I, I basically went to Los Llanos in Colombia. Mm -hmm. Like uh, and I just like asked a bunch of guys, hey dude, <laughs> can you sit up there and like grab the cow here and do these things, you know? And we just basically replicate them photographically. And then they were like made tapestry like, like in a digital process. It's interesting because... In this, I'm shifting a little bit from your project to kind of thinking about a contemporary art world, but there seems to be a shift towards artists using craft uh, materials, and we see that maybe more prevalent, you know, this in the last few years. And like for instance, Cindy Sherman uh, just made a line of tapestries where she prints her photographs 
or it's woven, her photo images are woven into tapestries. But it seems like with your piece, there's an intrinsic underlying reason for it to be a tapestry because it's referring to a tapestry. So it's not just a tapestry for tapestry's sake. You know, it's got this... Um, what, what I was telling you is like, I think I basically, I thought when I saw the tapestries in, in the museum in the Metropolitan, I was like, okay, like everything is done about the, the unicorn. It's like, there's a story, there's a medium, there's everything there, you know, like, there's like, it's like a magical story. Like those pieces are gorgeous and wonderful. So I was like, okay, well, I mean, I'm just going to do tapestries. I mean, I'm going to copy a tapestry to tell my own story and like kind of twist the, let's say like the, the imagery of it. So I'm just gonna do it on tapestry. Like that that's kind of was my thinking process. The other thing that I was actually liking a lot is like then my tapestries are like uh let's say like um how you say that like industrially made and that gives you like a lot of things. So it's like the the tapestries itself are like really pretty, a pretty object. And it talks a little bit about luxury, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh it's a luxury obtained through like like big chains, you know, and industrial commerce is like you know, it's like a fifty dollar tapestry at the end, you know? You can just make it with your face or like with someone else's face. So there's like this kind of like um. You can order it. Did you order it from a particular? Place? Yeah, like, like from like from a place that I, I cannot tell you right now because <laughs> they're gonna like um beat me if I do. No, that's but, cool though. Um, yeah. But basically like that. And what is what it was really nice about the other ones is like the tapestries on the on the Metropolitan. They say they're like super luxurious objects. Uh huh. Yes. Like um. Yeah, they took. You they know, took, months, like, uh, like years of like a hundred yeah. people like doing one tapestry for like some rich person, put it on his wall or like her wall or whatever, and it's like, okay, I feel that there is like a lot of like things that we can actually talk about through that too, you know. Yeah. Like, and they still have <coughs> the tradition of weaving um, on that level, you know, where it takes months and years. Um, in France, like totally. I, I, I knew this artist who took a, a series of workshops in this small town called Bagneux, France. So it's really still an alive thing, but um, certainly you're you're updating the process, you're contemporizing it, and yeah, kind of. Let's say let's and, say that, yeah. Uh, speaking of the textiles using the contemporary art, actually coming back to our review of the Frieze Art Fair, there was actually textiles were very much present. It's like contemporary, like very popular medium now, and uh, we we saw the works of like Louis Flores and. Natalie Frank, Elena Del Rivero, and Erin Riley at the PPOW, mm-hmm. which I thought would be relevant uh, here also. Uh, you know, the fire booth, Elena Del Rivero, her tapestries, which actually depict cowboy culture um, and the, you know, the Hollywood myths sur- surrounding that, that's kind of rendered by popular culture, by the, like the cinema. You render that through the contemporary uh, cow culture. And um, she does, uh, you know, the the pop like the movies. And I thought that that was rendering of contemporary pop in in some way in your work as well. Um, and uh, like the you, you mentioned like the name for the cowboy um, uh, in Spanish. Um, Anjanero. Anjanero. I have uh, here the note from that the van vanquer, vaqueros. Vaqueros. Vaqueros of the Americas, which were the horsemen and the cattle herders of Spanish Mexico who first came to California with uh, actually the Jesuit priest uh, UC Bokino in 1687 and later with like uh, expeditions uh, in like 18th century and that they were the first cowboys of the region. Do you know anything about about the Vanqueros? 
I didn't know that about that specific story that much, but I think something that is really interesting is like actually like kind of let's say as I call it cow people, <laughs> cow people just like are, 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 they tend to move a lot and they tend to conquer spaces a lot, you know, like mm. go from one place to another and just like go and stay there and like go and meet new. I don't know. They are kind of like adventurers, you know, like here in the states, like in the let's say like in the culture of like the cowboys, you know, like there's like people that is like looking for adventure in a certain way. And down there is kind of the same thing, you know, like mm -hmm. they have like, I don't know, this this idea of like, yeah, the wildlife, you know, and how you can like, I don't know, like make a living in that kind of system. There's multiplicity of the presence and identity of the cowboy, it, not directly, but uh, through research. Um, I found that the vaquero traditions, which developed in Mexico, and that was brought to Mesoamerica from Spain. And that became the foundation of the North American cowboy. So that's, that is like a diaspora of this cowboy and the cattle culture that it is definitely folded on the unicorn. But um, your, um, your tapestries also uh, employ another element of um, the capitalism because, and the capitalistic production because you order them online and do you know even where they are like produced? Like mass produced kind of in, thing. In China or? I don't know, like something like that, I guess. It's like just like a machine that moves everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love to say that honestly. Like I love to like break the people's heart. I've been showing it like in, in Bogota and in Colombia a lot, and they they say, "Oh, you're a master of women." Yeah. So first of all, I say yes, yes, of course, I'm a master. You see me like I, I don't know, move like eight hours a day almost. You see my hands, mm. <laughs> you know, and then it's like no, and I just like order them, you know, so I just swipe my card. I have a technical <laughs> question too. One is technical, the other is about your new work but the so it's actually woven not printed on top of it's fabric. woven so it's woven okay yeah my other question is i've heard it mentioned about some ikea project and i was not able to see any images of this online and oh. i'm really curious is it a project that is finished is it in progress is it uh, i don't know like that that it starts like that was my thesis uh, when i wasn't a hunter oh okay so this is a long time ago would oh. you mind reminding us yeah, it was like it was a series of pieces. Like uh, many of them, there were basically sculptures made with IKEA furniture. Uh, I mean, this I think the sculptures were kind of pretty horrible. Uh, I thought that they were amazing <laughs> embracement so of like modernist. You sculptures. mean like horrible in the sense that you weren't concerned about composition and yeah, formal qualities like that? Yeah, because the project was basically to like make the instructions of how to make pieces with the with the furniture, and then just to like run it like let's say like a as like Elio Tisica would call it like an insertion in an ideological circuit. So he basically like printed the instructions and like put them in the in the um, in a website that you could actually access through a card that I was actually like putting in the boxes on IKEA store. Mm -hmm. So when you buy the the I don't know like bed frame. Right. You will receive my instructions too so you actually can like do your bed frame or you can do like a modernist sculpture <laughs> for your living room. That's fantastic. I like and uh you can choose, you know, like the the project was uh kind of like inhabiting this space on a on the internet with basically like if you send me like a picture of that piece that you done I've sent you like a, a certification of originality of my work so you basically have like a, a Sebastian Carrasco in your house that can turn into a bed frame after you know oh I like so, that idea so that was kind very, of like the that's very clever um, yeah uh, so I would probably call you um, if I may a project based artist would you call yourself a project based artist only in the sense that you're not tied to a medium per se it's more conceptual so that your projects your materials 
they shift depending on your concept. Yeah, totally. Like basically, that's that's kind of what I do. Although I, I think I, I do a lot of video, and like I use video like in many ways to like. And sometimes performance too. Sometimes you use, yeah, use yourself yeah. as the main protagonist. That's more like filmic yeah, or, or term, but still. Do like, the actions that are the protagonist. Yeah. So kind of there thing. was a um, a piece that I remember from Hunter where you were sweeping a very large um, kind of industrial, empty, almost like an abandoned space, and you were carefully sweeping up like detritus of dust into a pile. Yeah, um, and was, you were you were acting in that. That was you the Barrer video. Yeah, like well, I mean, I think it's like I graduated in 2015, so I think it's like it's longer, it's longer, longer like seven years ago or something. When like I that. was watching on video, uh, it says three years ago. So, Time so that was like ticking. an abandoned factory. But I, I just quickly wanted to return <laughs> to that, um, uh, like remaking of the contemporary mass-produced furniture into a sculpture. Which I, I find really funny and, and brilliant and uh, the one that was called tutorial which is uh, which was in Spanish and uh, you were dressed as this instructor is, it, I think it was just so effective and um, you were so good in your role explaining what was that one? the the title tutorial is, um, is the same the oh, same exactly, title yeah. project yeah that's the that was the title <laughs> of the project on Vimeo that I found in Good. which you instruct on uh, how to it's like an you know like a instructional video on how to create your own sculpture and that was actually a piece from home center uh, per, a furniture it, it, it was a chair called the Silla Descanto Negra it was like a black chair and you you just sort of like made into this mode of like a uh, furniture kind of commercial piece that becomes a modernist uh, sculpture and it's very clunky but very effective in its final form. I, I mean that was kind of like a continuation of the IKEA project uh, when I get to Bogota I got like um, I mean I showed the, the, that project to a couple of people and they were kind of interested in the project and I could continue it there. There was actually like IKEA going to Colombia and a bunch of stuff so there was like kind of like I don't know usually that happens to my pieces a little bit what, what I'm doing is like I don't know what by coincidences, you know, I got like IKEA coming to Colombia at the same time that I'm coming there where I was doing the project. So it's kind of like everything like... Oh, you mean like the first IKEA store opened there? Yeah. Uh, and did you involve them officially? Were they... No, no, no. Did they sign off on this? Like, Well, um, they took they took longer, they, basically. So I went to another store that's called Home Center, which is like, let's say, like a Home Depot here. And they have just furniture similar to IKEA, and I just yeah, did the, the same thing. This piece that I mentioned <coughs> was, was uh, in description. That was home center piece. Yeah, exactly. I'm talking about that one. Because basically, like what I did is like the first part of the project that happened in New York was like um, like say graphic instructions, you know, like drawings, basically as the IKEA drawings that you receive, you know, when you buy like some chair or something. Well, this was kind of the same. But when I went to Ogota, I said, ah, I mean, I I kind of like it better. Like no one like reads instructions anymore. Like I buy a camera and I just go to YouTube mm -hmm. and like try to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. So mm -hmm. it's like, okay, I'm gonna do a video like for the piece. So I started like doing these videos. Actually that project developed in a really weird way, like in the last tutorials that I've been doing, like I've been actually like I've been working with this guy that is super similar to Bob Ross and I've been creating my own painting tutorials, like Bob Ross tutorials. Uh with this actor slash like uh, mm -hmm. performer that I have now in Colombia. Uh, oh, yeah, you're but, working with someone, you said? Yeah, well, like, the idea of, like, the of the tutorials, like, kept on my mind a little bit because I was kind of interested in this idea of, like, kind of, like, I don't know, the mythification of art and, like, what it means to have a piece in your house and what does it mean and uh, who can access to that piece and who cannot access to that piece, you know? 
And at the end, I was kind of interested, just to, like make a big joke. You know, it's like, I mean, you can just like buy the bed frame in Ikea, just like send me a picture, I'll send you the certified the certification and you're, you're good. You know, you have a piece in your contemporary in your house, didn't cost you more than 80 bucks. It's like pretty affordable, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of interested in that kind of like way of thinking because I don't know, I like I think that maybe like, um, I don't know, I, I like humor basically. Yeah. I, I need to go through it's, that through it, that mood. It almost sometimes. becomes an uh, institutional critique. In a certain way, let's say. Or even male art. It kind of refers to, you know, conceptual male art in the sense that <coughs> oftentimes male art would have instructions on how to generate an art object, but not necessarily a sculpture, but some, okay. some initiate a, a task within an art, art context. Oh, but I have yeah. a question. Um, you're also an educator, correct? You're, yeah. You I, lead some I courses. In, in, and where in uh, Colombia are you located now? Um, I'm living in Bogota. Bogota. Yeah. And do you feel that the current Venezuelan crisis has impacted you as an artist and your work and even life there? Is What is um, going on there? <laughs> What's going on <laughs> there? I mean, like, um, it has been pretty crazy. For you, I mean, I guess from a, you know, insider's perspective. And, uh, mm, what can I say? I mean, I have like a lot of Venezuelan friends. Mm-hmm. Um and I've been meeting a lot of Venezuelans in Colombia these days because of like the trouble that the country is going through, like in Venezuela. Just people is going to the nearest places, like Bogota is one of them. Mm-hmm. So Colombia has a ton of immigration, like Venezuelan mm-hmm. immigration. Um, actually, yes, it has touched me, but like in, in really weird ways, you know, like, um, for example, to start the Unicorn Project, I actually started that Unicorn Project with a grant that I got to go to Venezuela to the office. And I actually got that grant from the Colombian government to go to Caracas and do that piece in a residency. Oh, wow. Uh, and in that moment that I was, uh, like, I, I was, was planning to go, the protest started, and uh, the army actually, like, uh, burned the house where I was staying in Caracas. So I couldn't go. And, like, everything started like that. It was like, kind of just like, um, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know, by luck, like, little like, moments, I don't know. So you were there Venezuelans. when the fire started, or you were on your, you were planning to... You know, I was planning to go, and, like, the fire sent me, like, you know, like, I mean, how the hell am I going to wow. go there to do video in a place that is completely, like, wow. like, on riots right now, like, the other part of the residency was in Cuba, that is a, a little city, like, uh, near to Caracas, 45 minutes away, and Cuba doesn't have electricity, like, two weeks a month. How the hell am I going to do video in a place with no electricity, no water, no food, no nothing? And uh, oh. the place where I'm going to say is burned. <laughs> Maybe I just like I just quit it, you know. I decided to don't go. And kind of that that was kind of the starting point of the Unicorn Project, you know. Oh, really? So I was like doing the Unicorn Project in Venezuela. My idea was to actually go through the same path that the cows came through America doing performance. And the project changed completely see, due yeah. to that. I couldn't, so I couldn't you really, get there. you really actually were very directly impacted, uh, or your art practice was um, by the current. Yeah, let's argue. say. Yeah, um, I mean, but it, and it's an ongoing um, issue, right? Like it's not resolved. No, I mean Venezuela is still like uh, it seems that it's, it's still in crisis. Yeah, it's still like I mean they have a lot of trouble. <laughs> that doesn't mean that Colombia doesn't have it, but like it seems that those guys cannot like even like buy food. So yeah, 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 yeah we're receiving uh, tons of Venezuelans. And speaking about violence and the state control, there is also guerrilla, guerrilla, guerrilla groups that are military groups that like they have their own borders basically and their own 
uh, administrative infrastructure that's really scary. Okay, in Colombia, you, you say? Well, that one is a pretty complex subject, you know, yeah. like, mm -hmm. I think you can do it like a, a, um, a show with someone that is kind of more yeah. qualified. <laughs> yeah, do, this. Uh, do you uh, reflect on that in your work? Speak I mean, I think I, I deal with a lot of like the politics of Colombia, I think, as I was telling you, like cow farming has a lot of like, um, I don't know, like, it, it's really related to the like, history of it's violence of the guerrillas in Colombia. Yeah. But like, to put it, like summarize it a ton, you know, like there's a book, there's a really good book uh, of like a couple of researchers in Colombia. It's an economist and a political scientist, and it's called The Power of Meat. And basically it tells like how like a uh, cow farming and allowed to basically like keep territories of Colombia, like for the cow uh, farmers, to keep like public territories. And they'd say like, just yeah, it's like gather a lot of like wealth. Basically, yeah, because it generates wealth. Well, basically, like there was a law. I don't. I remember it was like after the fifties a little bit. That was basically like um, if you had a lot of cow cattle and your territory, like your land, didn't have like enough space for your cattle, you can take public land and claim it as yours, and they'll give you the papers for it. But that wow. means that only like the rich people would be able to claim land to become more rich. And right. like the the problem in Colombia, like it deals a lot with the territory, the territory that like is good for um oil like extractions um, like uh, wow. farming palm or stuff like that so like for example strategies like, like the paramilitaries or like the government like everyone used there is like displacement they go to a town that is like uh, they need the lands for like a sell it to a Canadian company you know so the government like or like someone you know because no one can like actually like claiming that guilt you know and we I don't know that shit is a mess there but basically just like guerrillas paramilitaries go and swipe the area like just kill everyone, do massacres in the towns. People like wow. the, the, the last survivors, they're just like displaced by violence and then gets the government, gets the land and sells it to the international companies. So when I'm saying like the land is like pretty tied with the violence, there's like, that's kind of my per my personal uh, point of view too. But I, I think it's like really rooted there, you know, like in that way. And uh, it's kind of funny because at the end, like the biggest um, land owners in Colombia are the biggest cattle owners. And for example, when FARC started like to do like um, one of the the terrorist actions that they were doing uh, at the beginning of their existence was and like through a little period of time was to charge you to be able to have land and to be able to have, to have cattle. So as soon as the guerrillas that are the leftist, let's say like party on the on Colombia started, they started to charge the cattle people first. Mm. So it seems that then the cattle people like gathered and said, okay, these guys are just like charging us a bunch of money, like illegally. So we're gonna create our own, own our own army to fuck the guerrillas, and then they create the paramilitaries. So mm. it's like, like it's basically like a, like a war under like the table of the state, and everything just for like uh, territory and like. Uh, right. So weirdly, the like cattle that. culture and the farming culture is intertwined with politics and the military groups. Mm -hmm. If you which, said, if which you, ties if, in with your project. If you, if you read, for example, like the, the, the agreements between the FARC and the uh, Colombian government, one of the main parts is like a, what is called Reforma Agraria or, agric or Agricultural uh, Reform. It needs to happen, you know, like basically the, the left and like the guerrillas claim that the distribution on land in Colombia is really, really unfair. I think a couple of days ago, I don't know which fucking study said that Colombia is basically like, like the most um, corrupt country in the world mm -hmm. and it's like the second one that is more unfair where the like the wealth of the population like stays in like one percent of the population and the rest of the population is just like the 99 percent of the population can deal with one percent of the wealth 
and one percent of the population has the ninety percent of the wealth. You know, so it's like mm -hmm. these kind of numbers. I don't know if you know that, for example, like our the rich, the Colombian more rich guy, is ten times richer than Donald Trump oh. in a country like Colombia. What's so his like, name? Uh, Luis Carlos Sarmiento Angulo. And don't get me started with that one. <laughs> <laughs> so well, your work is actually very political, even though one would not necessarily read that by looking at it, but it's really rich with these layers of meaning. I think that's kind of the strongest type of political art that's not, you know, delivering an overt message because those are very timely. They can be um, outdated if it's like a very direct message, but something like this is such an ongoing and deeply rooted history. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've, I've, I've said something on my work that like, I cannot get rid of uh, the humor. If you see the tapestries, are completely humoristic. And they have like these narco aesthetics and everything, you know, that they look super narco in, like, weird, <laughs> in a real like... weird way. I was saying like to myself, like, I mean, the best person that can actually like buy these tapestries is a narco or someone like that, you know, like if it's completely into the house <laughs> yeah. or something like right, that. Right, right, right. And they wouldn't even necessarily read the same meaning as we would. Exactly. And, well, and, and I think that humor is really important to be able to like deal with like those layers and to be able to deal with politics. Like, uh, I don't know, humor, like, allows you to actually, like, stay a little bit longer with an idea and just, like, chew it a little bit more, you know, and understand it a little bit more. The other day I was looking, like, just, like, a stupid interview, like, like uh, this guy that I was um, interviewing, like, let's say, like, the leftist, um, I don't know, like, candidate for presidency in Colombia and stuff. And usually, like, that, that, that guy, the candidate, is, like, kind of, like, stiff and, like, you cannot, like, relate to the guy that much. And just like the guy that was making the interview with him, they were just drinking, like making jokes. And it's like, dude, I can get your ideas now. Like humor actually allowed me to like go through your horrible personality <laughs> and like understand you a little bit better, you know, like, like kind of like stay with you at this for like half an hour and hear you. Right. So I think yeah. humor is really important for that. Very much. And you're really, you, you speak that language fluently. It's amazing <laughs> uh, how you incorporate that. And uh, can you talk a little bit about your future project with the silent language? You always involve uh, some uh, specific types of communities, either based in Colombia or here. You always engage collective collaboration, which is amazing, that help build your project. And right now you're, you're uh, working on this performance piece. Uh, would you speak a little bit about that and what's the time frames and uh, your upcoming shows? Well, I mean... I've been working in that project like since I think a year ago or something like that and it's like several pieces uh, that have been showing like in different shows uh, in Colombia mm, until like these days basically um, the, everything started because uh, that one is actually pretty really politically I don't know like the guide towards kind of that idea and uh, it started because uh, in Colombia like they just passed a law that like we have um like the obligation to or like the government has the the obligation of like show in sign language all the like debits of the senate so like people like with disabilities can actually understand them and I, I was just looking at the debits and and I was looking at the guy like the the guy that makes like the interpreter the guy that makes the sign language and I saw that guy just like he's just like almost convulsioning you know like moving all his arms around and like doing all of these signs there's like super violent signs too and I was like kind of interested about that just like little performance that little window that can actually like dismantle what the language does to an idea you know like language can soften an idea really nice you know mm -hmm. 
I can no. say massacre in the most beautiful way ever, you know. <laughs> but you know how you say massacre, like in 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 sign language, you just need you need to point a machine gun to your, the guy in front of you. So if I want to say massacre to you, I need to shoot you, mm-hmm. like literally shoot you, or like kill mm-hmm. you, or like sniff cocaine. It's like there's there's like a lot of signs that like uh just like yeah dismantle that like kind of like I don't know, like ornamental layer. So that is the actual sign language for machine gun is to take. No, that's the actual sign language uh, for massacres. To take a machine gun in your hands and, and shoot and it. pretend, like, air, air gun it. Air exactly. Gun it. But, I mean, sign language is pretty specific to certain, like, to the cultures, you know? Like, yeah. sign language in the U.S. is one thing. Sign language mm. in Colombia is one thing. Sign language in Mexico is one thing. We have, like, it's rooted in France, all of them, because, like, oh, they okay. started to develop sign language there. But uh, we have, like, our own, like, kind of, like, let's say, um, like, dialects. Right. So we have, like, words in common. Like, thank you, for example. But there's like other like specific words that are more like, uh, yeah, or like I don't know. Like so your work is very research based. Like you will, you're researching sign language. You're clearly yeah, how it's changed, where it's from, and the different cultural meanings from one country to another. Yeah, so totally. Like- I mean, that's the interesting part of the performance because what I'm saying is like the 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 signs can like basically like they have uh, their own grammatics, you know, like as performance does, you know, it's like dance does, you know, like. It's like a grammatics of the body that actually you can understand it, you know, like uh, you cannot speak the uh, sign language, but you are you're not go- you're gonna understand kind of what I'm what I'm going through, you know, like what I wanted to express to you, just because of my body. You can relate, you, we relate body to body, and I think that's really good to like actually like go and like uh, I don't understand like the structures of power that language has, you know, because at the end our world is just constructed by language, mm-hmm. and that's what you eventually navigate uh, through language of different cultures and mythologies and uh, I think it's kind of related humor, like that. politics, critique uh, of society and social norms, the market economy and capitalism. It's incorporating all of these mediums together. Thank you so much for being uh, on our show. Actually, we all uh, met at Hunter College and Digital Media Collective, which right. me and Sebastian run together. Just brief mention uh, before we wrap up. <laughs> so it's a nice closure for, yeah, totally. for that. And Rebecca was also in the collective for a long time of the collective formation. We did some projects and exhibitions. It's so great to unite and uh, totally. talk about Thank these you things. for the. Uh, do you have anything to announce for your upcoming shows? Or? Well, I mean, I have a couple of shows uh, coming in Bogota. Actually, both of them like related to the topics we're talking about. The first one is just like a series of performances that I'm doing in Espacio de Ol. That are they're gonna go for a, for a month basically. They're going to run uh, there in Bogota. And there's another curatorial project that I'm doing with people from Los Llanos. But this time it's their work, not mine. Finally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's like I'm working with both of them. That's mm-hmm. for March. Something like at the end of March. Congratulations. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for being on our show. No, thank, thank you, for you inviting so much me. for, thank you for, for having me. being here. And that was the 13th episode. And we are ending with... Oh, actually, would you mind announcing it? It's a, you yes. mentioned it was um, a acquaintance of yours who is the band ah uh, yeah like these guys are awesome actually yeah. they play like a kind of like a let's say like a jazzy version of cumbia or something like that like a lot of like a mixture of like Colombian rhythms and like rock and roll and they have some like jazzy format and stuff like that it's pretty nice it's called Los Georges and uh, the song is called Patacon and their album is called Una Vida and like I mean I hope everyone enjoys it thank you so much Sebastian uh, thank you